Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Each year here in Michigan, political business and philanthropic leaders gather on Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference. It's an event that represents the largest collection of folks who are driving policy here in our state. I sat down with a lot of those leaders as part of last week's event, and this hour, as part of our series covering the conference, we're going to share some of those conversations with you. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I am in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island for the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference. Our chance to get political and business and philanthropic leaders away from Detroit and other cities together on the island to talk about all of our successes and our failures and our challenges here as a state. Philanthropy plays a huge part in the Mackinac Policy Conference, but it also plays a very big part in our city of Detroit. Uh, I am really pleased to welcome one of the philanthropic leaders in Detroit uh, to the program. Malenka Clark is the CEO of the Hudson Weber Foundation. Malenka, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. And I have to say, up front, um, Malenka and I have known each other for a long time now uh, because uh, I'm a member of the board at the Hudson Weber Foundation, and uh, she and I have worked together for seven years while she's been the CEO. Indeed. uh, Figuring out all kinds of interesting things to do and to to participate in as, uh, as members trouble. of the Hudson Weber found Foundation family, right? Indeed, <laughs> yes. indeed. Uh, and, and I should also say that I've got Malenka here uh, today because she's leaving us. Uh, she is uh, moving on to other things. She's moving to another city and uh, is going to leave her stewardship of the Hudson Weber Foundation. I think that's a really great opportunity to talk about philanthropy, to talk about Hudson Weber there are a lot of things that have happened in the last seven years that most people wouldn't know about in terms of the way that uh, we're involved in all kinds of different parts of the city and in some cases the state, but also in the way that philanthropy is changing and changing Detroit, which is different, I think, from what you would see if you visited uh, other cities. So I'm, I'm really pleased to have Malenka here. But um, I also want to brag just a little bit about Malenka (laughs) before we started the conversation. (laughs) You know, when we were hiring uh, a new CEO at at Hudson Weber, of course, you know, the the thought, I think, was that we would mostly be looking at local candidates who would want to lead the institution. Malenka came to us from the Justice Department in Washington, where she worked for Eric Holder, uh, running the community policing program that was uh, really pioneering. Chief of staff. Chief of staff for uh, the the COPS program, which was a really pioneering uh, policy initiative in the Obama administration. So we were really fortunate to get her 
to come to Detroit and to lead uh, Hudson Weber. So it's great to have you here. It's been my my privilege yeah, uh, to, yeah. to come here. Yeah. So uh, the foundation has changed a lot since you have been in charge. I wonder, yeah. I, I spend a lot of time explaining to people what that change <laughs> has looked, at, looked like, but I, I don't know that I've ever heard you describe the change yeah. that you think has happened at Hudson Weber over that time. So I'm, I'm curious to hear that. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, you know, it, it has changed, although in, um, I think that the the strengths of the way that Hudson Weber operates in the world, there's certainly been a through line for, you know, the entire time that the foundation has operated. But I certainly, as you mentioned, I came to the foundation new to philanthropy, not new to grant making, because the, um, the COPS office is, in fact, a grant making outfit yes. at the DOJ. Um, and I was naive enough to think it would be similar. And it is not similar at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's different in all kinds of ways. But certainly, you know, I'm a lawyer by training. I had done advocacy work and deeply embedded um, and passionate around civil rights issues and criminal justice issues in particular. So I knew, and, and even as I interviewed with the trustees for the position, I'd put on the table, sort of, if I come here, you know, I do want to move the foundation into this work. I do care um, about equity, which is a word that we, you know, going through the pandemic and George Floyd, I mean, it's actually been so interesting to have that moment happen mm-hmm. as Hudson Weber really dug in in 2017 yes. to say, we're going to be really intentional. We're going to think about addressing racial inequity and structural barriers to opportunity. And, and what should that mean for our investments? I think for most people that have been paying attention, um, and I, I don't say that in a perturbative way, but folks that are watching, I think you know, primarily that has meant moving investments into neighborhoods. Um, and that, that is really, you know, the benefit for me of coming in. And frankly, let's face it, you know, I'm from New York originally. My husband came here for a position. Yes. He, um, with the DGC. With the DGC at the time. Yeah. And he, he tells this joke, I can't believe I'm going to repeat it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. He said, what do you think about Detroit as he was thinking about his opportunity? And I said, I don't. Uh, That's what I said. (laughs) But then I can't, you know, I can't, as he was exploring the opportunity, I came and I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with what was happening here. I fell in love with the energy. And part of the dynamism certainly was what was happening downtown. And certainly before I came, Hudson Weber was deep in downtown, Mm -hmm, midtown. Let's mm -hmm. see what's happening. And so I credit the investments that Hudson Weber made in, in part for me coming. But when I, you know, when I arrived, it felt like, and it's not, you know, there's so much work to be done throughout the city, but that it was a really important moment to think about um, how, you know, if the frame is Detroiters, our enduring mission is improving the quality of life in Detroit. But as we launched this new strategy, it was, you know, we're looking for a vibrant city of shared prosperity, Mm. shared prosperity, a Detroit that works for everybody. Um, a Detroit where Detroiters are are in charge of their own future. And that that actually is an interesting place for philanthropy, not just in sort of, you know, what we fund, but also how we fund. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just for, for our, uh, the sake of our listeners who may not even be familiar with the foundation at all, uh, and you alluded to this in your answer, you know, the foundation spent a lot of time and, and money jump-starting a lot of the things that have happened in 
what we call the 7.2, uh, the 7.2 square miles that include downtown and midtown. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, that was coined by Hudson Weber, I think, that, that, yeah. I, that very so idea. Hudson Weber report, um, yep. Yeah, and so when you came to be a CEO, the way I always describe it is that uh, we, we moved from 7.2 to a much larger footprint. We started thinking about uh, the rest of the city and the, this vast kind of uh, diverse and, and uh, diversely affected part of, of Detroit, right? I mean, with yep. lots of different challenges and problems that you wouldn't see in the 7.2. Yep. And I'd, I'd say absolutely from it, from a straight geography perspective, that is the case. Although I will say, and I, I think as you know, Stephen, this has been important for our trustees as well. It's not, you know, we have to be strategic. Uh, you know, any foundation, sure. um, the largest foundation, the smallest, is never going to have enough money to drive the change in any particular place. But we have, we, we have got to have impact I should say, to have impact, we have got to hold hands with others mm-hmm. in order to see the results of that impact. And so the other um, just, you know, uh, amazing thing that we had the opportunity to invest in and be part of was the Strategic Neighborhood Fund, yeah. which really did a careful job of aggregating resources in place. And so it certainly has been a shifting from that downtown geography, but in a targeted way. Yes. And I, I would say, you know, there is a second piece to this strategy, which is not about geography per se. It's about the policy piece. Because in order, the levers that we need to actually see change at a neighborhood level are going to take these policy levers across a host of domains. Talk about some of the things that, as you leave Detroit, um, that you'd point to that we've helped change at Hudson Weber things that um, that you've erected uh, that that uh, will stand and, and continue to make change in, in places here in Detroit. How is that change in philosophy playing out in a way that people would see it? So um, I appreciate that question. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, for me, and I mentioned my background as a lawyer and in, in the criminal justice work, but one of the things that Hudson Weber did and that the trustees were so supportive of was, you know, early on, I think my second year, we had a statewide convening around criminal legal reform. Yep. We brought stakeholders from across the state. And I, one of the important things is that the trustees understood, you know, our focus is Detroit. It has to be. But there is, there is no way for us to sort of advance the ball down the line if we don't lift our sights up to the state. I mean, that's why we're all here in Mackinac. Many of us are Detroit-focused folk. Um, So, you know, out of that convening, as I thought about sort of how can we, what sort of can add up to that impact, I kind of had a couple of observations. One of them is that to move the levers around policy, we've got a, um, we have an aperture in Detroit. We have national funders, just from a funder's perspective, that are here in Michigan, but not on the ground. And folks from throughout the state that are kind of seeing different pieces of the elephant, but none of us were holding hands to, together. Mm. And so I feel really, you know, it felt very essential <laughs> for us to come together and not just the funders, but practitioners doing this work too. And that, of course, the convening was the first part of that. But what that eventually turned into 
is a funders collaborative called the Michigan Justice Fund. Yep. And that is something um, that I am incredibly proud to be a part of and um, to have had a hand in, in bringing together. And, it, you know, at this point, we're up to 14 funders. The way we decided what this funders collaborative would focus on was so participatory. We had 26 organizations across the state co-creating a plan with us. Um, as we thought about where to land this thing, we have this amazing partnership with the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, where it le- lives. Mm-hmm. And now we have an incredible director, Ashley Carter, yep. who came in over a year ago and is literally, I feel, um, as I leave, just so encouraged and secure in where that work is going because yeah. she's so fantastic. Yeah. So I, I want to have you talk also about philanthropy in Detroit and the role that it plays and how different it is from other cities, but also the difference among foundations. Uh, Hudson Weber is a local foundation. The money was made uh, as part of the J.L. Hudson company and stays here in the in the community as, as a foundation. It's really different than an institution like Kresge or Kellogg. Um, the roles typically or historically have been very different, but they, they seem to have overlapped more, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years as some of the national foundations have become much more active uh, in Detroit, so so yeah. I guess place Hudson Weber on that on that spectrum, and then talk about how we think about what the obligations are for a foundation like that versus something like a Kresge or a Kellogg. Yeah, I think you know one of the things as I came into the foundation that was really moving to me was just the history of the foundation and of the family mm-hmm. um, that created the foundation and through the department store, and I think that. You know, the, the constant for our foundation has been Detroit. And Detroit has changed enormously <laughs> over the span of uh, the family. You know, a hundred times, you know, right? It's, it's changing all the time. A hundred times over. But I think um, the trustees of the foundation have kept that North Star of, of Detroit. You know, if Detroit is the impact, how do we orient towards that? And that's why you see changing investments, yeah. because Detroit is changing. So that, that's a piece of it. It has been interesting, as you know, as you mentioned, I came out of the Justice Department, but actually also mostly had partnerships and sort of knew the e- ecosystem of national funders. And it, it has been part of the Michigan Justice Fund. Part of the benefit is, of that has been being able to draw those national foundations sure. into a place where I think they really value having a partner on the ground that sort of has the, you know, has is is in the is actually in the ecosystem that we're trying to support mm-hmm. and fund um, where they bring their own particular expertise many of our most of our national partners at the table are experts on criminal legal reform where we've got more generalists of the folks that are here in Detroit so it's been a really nice yin and yang yeah yeah um, when you think about the things that philanthropy is doing in the city and, and again it, that's all very different than what it was. 10 or 15 years ago as well. I mean, they're much more active uh, than, than they were. I, I think a lot of people worry about that because they worry that philanthropy is displacing other institutions that should be doing some of these things or maybe used to do some of those things. I wonder what you make of, of how that has unfolded here and things that we maybe should be a, a little wary about. Yeah, I think the... Um you know, when I when I came into the um, city, 
it was a real learning curve to understand what philanthropy had been funding here. Hmm. You know, even Hudson Weber for our what was then called our safe community space was paying for police cars. Literally. <laughs> Which is unusual. Which, uh, yeah, you wouldn't should know it if you're in Detroit. That doesn't but, happen every place. Right, exactly. Right? It's like, wow. Yeah, it's not supposed to happen. Exactly. That's not the way that's supposed to work. And it's, it's, you know, a beautiful thing in that philanthropy certainly stepped in at a moment in the city's history where, where that step in needed to happen. And, of course, the grand bargain is, a, is an example of that. But at the end of the day, electeds are accountable to the community and philanthropy has to walk with a lot of humility um, and be very careful um, because as much as we hold ourselves accountable, we hold ourselves accountable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yes. know, it's um, and so I've been I've been, you know, mindful about that. I think the broader conversation around equity and the reckoning that has happened around the George Floyd moment has actually made philanthropy nationally, not just in Detroit, but much more introspective about that. Much more thoughtful about how do we decide what we're doing? Sure. We're about to release an impact report on our work that includes, you know, we went out and asked people, you know, what do you think of what we've how done? How did this what, change your yes, world? What has the impact from your point of view? Yeah. We have a report um, that we funded that we've been talking about today with Detroit Future City, and they similarly, it's grounded in their work. They mm-hmm. use participatory um, mechanisms to get the feedback around where investments should go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Malenka Clark, uh, CEO of Hudson Weber. I'm, of course, quite crushed that you're leaving and <laughs> I'm going to miss you. And uh, the, the, the work that you've done here at the foundation is, is phenomenal. And the, the, the shift to that focus of, of equity is so important right now in Detroit. So, of course, a big thank you. Appreciate you, you, Stephen. But, of course, thanks for being here. I'll still Detroit be listening today. to your show. Yes. Oh, of course. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more with Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you joined us. I am talking to you from the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference, our annual trip north to get business, political, and philanthropic leaders together to talk about all of the challenges that we have in Michigan, maybe come up with ideas that they couldn't when we were back home. I met Brian Kelly the first time when he was a state rep here in the state of Michigan from a very different place than where I'm from in Detroit. He went on to become the lieutenant governor of the state under Rick Snyder and is now running the Small Business Association here in our state. He is one of the people that I kind of use as a temperature check. Uh, He's a really reasoned and smart guy who's really thoughtful about the things that we experience and the challenges that we have. I'm really glad to be sitting across now from Brian Kelly. Brian, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Great to be with you. And it's uh, it's nice to every once in a while be dug out of my political grave to come in and uh, have a conversation. (laughs) Okay, you you put it that way. I did not. Let's make that uh, for the record. I don't think it's a grave. I think it's maybe a temporary, temporary hiatus. Let's call it that. You know, I uh, I I do love working with entrepreneurs. In fact, in fact, I've taken to association work and uh, but particularly the constituency that I work with, entrepreneurs and small business owners. Uh, 
I think I might just close out my career here. Really? I just, I, I love it that much. It is, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the best of all worlds. I, I'm still involved in, in politics. I still get to kind of scratch that itch, but it doesn't rule every waking moment of my life. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a place where pragmatism and, um, and an attitude of bringing people together, solving problems without respect for where on the political spectrum that particular issue sure. lies yeah. is, is not just accepted, but expected. And so it makes it a very comfortable home. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the business climate and the small business climate here in the, in the state of Michigan. Most people I talk to say it's improved uh, over a longer period of time than just the last few years, uh, but they always have additional concerns, things that they feel our political leaders could do to make it easier to start businesses in our state and then, of course, to sustain your business over, over time. Uh, what If you were looking at uh, us from the outside, what would you say are our strengths and uh, our weaknesses? Well, when you think of the, stat, the status of where Michigan small business is today, we do see more startup activity and more small businesses surviving into maturity than we have in the past. And this has been growing, but it especially became true in the in the two years following the pandemic. So people seem to have turned to entrepreneurship as a way of life more since the pandemic than before. That's actually really interesting because it's not what I would have predicted. You would think it would be maybe the opposite, although it's not unusual during times of uncertainty for people to want to take more control of their lives and or life is short and I'm just going to go for it. You know, there's a, probably a lot of different reasons. Uh, one that's kind of a new factor is the remote and flexible work environment that many people find themselves in. People can start small businesses as side gigs and not give up their W-2 jobs like before w- would have been required. So I think there's a lot of factors, but we are seeing record new small business starts and it's sustained. It went higher after the pandemic and month by month it has stayed higher. At the same time, we also see the five-year survival rate going up. And that that five years is an important mark. That's when you really you get to the staying power. Mm-hmm. You reach maturity. You're out of the startup phase and, um, and poised and ready to grow. So those two things together are pretty powerful. More new small businesses and more of them surviving mm-hmm. is why we find ourselves in a position where um, Michigan is uh, stacking up very well compared to the rest of the nation on on the increase in small businesses open and the revenue derived uh, from small businesses. It's, it's, it's good because we're, there's a resiliency that comes from the diversity in small business. It's, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. So every industry you can think of across every community in the state, and it's, it's, a, um, it's a buffer, if you will, to economic ups and downs like you don't, we don't we we won't have or we haven't had as many extremes here as we have in the past because of uh, more diversity in our economy. That's a um, those are all strengths. So what I kind of you know it's funny like usually people have this big long agenda do this 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 and this. My li- my list is more a list of don't do this 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 this. You know kind of <laughs> more of keep it the same like the it's working stability how it is yeah. right now is working and. Um, especially when we have we put our scorecard report, our entrepreneurship scorecard report uh, last week, and um, 19 years worth. So we've got a really cool track record and kind of looking at this closely from not the overall economy, but the entrepreneurial economy, the small business economy. And 
it, 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 we've, we have, in spite of all the challenges, have had a, a couple of strong years, and it was, and it represents the time that we had divided government. We're frankly not a lot changed. <laughs> we couldn't get anything done, right? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, from a political standpoint, we think, oh, that's so frustrating. But if you're running a business and, and taking on risks, the idea of just knowing what the landscape is and, and feeling comfortable is not going to change, that's actually a pretty big competitive advantage. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wonder what you make of the specific challenges and how they are different, I guess, for, for small businesses in rural parts of Michigan, which is a, a big part of the state, and and then in cities, which is also uh, a big part of the state. They, they aren't the same. It's not the same to start a business in Houghton as it is in Muskegon or Detroit. Uh, what are those differences and how does SBA try to help people navigate them? Yeah, the, the, the difference is uh, there are some things that, that new small businesses and early stage businesses have in common. And then, of course, there are very unique challenges that exist as well. The, um, how well a local community is equipped to support that small business and a tendency to buy and think local has a lot to do mm-hmm. with um, how difficult a path a, a business might take. And it's also access to uh, to in- employees, employees that are prepared and ready. So in, uh, in, in areas where you have strong uh, workforce um, development that, that's not really aimed at one company, but, but rather for the population, Areas that generally have growing populations tend to be able to staff up easier than mm-hmm. areas that have uh, stagnant or shrinking populations. And, um, and so those types of subtle differences can really make the difference in a, in a newer enterprise, and it's pretty fragile in those first few years. The, um, another area that in, in the past has been pretty challenging, just access to capital. You know, yeah. how, do you, how do you get the always, money? Always, always, always yeah, with, that with is, small businesses. But I, I would say that in urban areas, it's actually more um, acute mm-hmm. than in, um, in rural areas. And it's not totally obvious why that is. The, um, when, um, when a new business starts, it's, it's risky across the board. It's very risky. And it's why kind of traditional financing arrangements do not... Um, you can't always check all the right boxes mm-hmm. in order to uh, to go through a bank or a credit union when you're starting up a, a new company. And uh, so what are the other non-bank options that are available? And, um, and it just seems like um, there might be um, fewer options in more densely populated areas. Mm-hmm. And um, that... On its face, it seems like it should be the opposite, doesn't it? I mean, and, and yet, that's not the case. But I do think that the um, part of it is just a matter of your when you have an uh, an area that is more that has a higher poverty level, just the capital that's out there and available is constrained. Yeah. It's limited, yeah. and uh, and so I think it's just the size of the pie is different proportionate to the population. Well, well. Um, I do want to talk politics with you as well. Um, uh, first, the politics of, of now, I guess, in, in Lansing, Democrats are in charge of both houses of the legislature and the, the governor's office for the first time in a really long time. From a business perspective, talk to me about the first five months of those politics. Yeah, it's been a little bit rough. Um, <laughs> I and, knew you were going to say that. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of the you know, just a, a, a lot of things, you know, it was kind of a, a quick pace. And, um, and so the, 
the uh, processes, give, the normal process, engagement process has given way somewhat to um, expediency of like, and, you know, I think a recognition of these times period, the time periods when like the stars align for one side to like do a bunch of things doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So yeah, take advantage. Like, yeah, take advantage and do as much as possible. Um, what I do see starting to happen now, though, is is that pace slowing a bit with um, at least a spoken desire to get back to higher levels of engagement and negotiation. Um, I think that would be uh, very positive. You know, there's, there's one area that I would love for government to be inefficient in, and that is making laws. <laughs> This is uh, our our system is kind of designed to be inefficient, you know, designed to be difficult to make. This is the conservative in you really coming out, right? Yeah. Well, it it is a, um, you know, it's one of those areas where, um, again, getting back to that stability. Yeah. um, Just having um, having things be predictable and reliable and you know it's easy to say when you like the status quo right acknowledging that um, but that when it comes to the overall operating environment when I look at the at the numbers and look at the success of, of small business overall in our state uh, it's hard to argue against generally keeping things stable compared to how they are today yeah um, are there things that are on your list of of hope for us, I guess, with with small business that you'd like to think this legislature and governor, even though they are of a different party, might might actually entertain and, and pass? Well, I, I certainly am happy about the focus on population growth. Yeah, it is our well, biggest long-term that's, that's challenge. For everyone, everyone for, here it is, yeah. Yeah, it, it is a, uh, and it's one of the things that defies, you know, a handful of quick solutions. Um, this is the sort of thing, this is fits the analogy where you plant seeds today and you'll never enjoy the shade yeah. of the trees that, 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 that grow later because of the work you're doing. But this is the type of stuff where if everything is done right now, we'll see 10 and 20 years from now a change in our population. We will not see a success. We are a shrinking state. Success first is to stop shrinking. But I could see four or five years from now, if our state just didn't grow at all, but didn't shrink also, people looking at it like somehow, oh, it's, it's been a failure. But <laughs> right. actually, before you can start to grow, you have to stop shrinking. Right. And that's, and I, I think it will take a uh, sustained effort. Um, our, our view on issues that are important are, is pretty wide. Yeah, there's basics like housing that, that matches the population's income levels. Like that is an, an absolute necessity. Um, broadband infrastructure, high-speed inter- internet access would put very, very high on the list. And then um, our, uh, our K-12 system. We, we do have to have more success in our education system because each, each graduating class for the next 10 years will be smaller than the one before. That's baked in. It's going to be that way. So one one way to kind of bias a little bit of time to get pa- to get uh, past the population challenges is to make sure that more of the people that we already have going through the system yeah. are ready to compete and win in a, in a 21st century competitive global economy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more politics. Uh, you and I had a conversation... I think it was sometime last year, maybe the year before, where I, I think we're just standing around talking. And it dawned on me 
that we were pretty close to a gubernatorial cycle uh, here. It, it wasn't it wasn't coming up soon, but it was coming up. And I stopped and I said, you know, your name has not been anywhere in the discussions about possible candidates, and and yet you were. Uh, twice elected lieutenant governor of a Republican uh, lieutenant governor in this state. I've had that conversation with lots of other Republicans, people who'd won statewide office as Republicans who didn't feel like they had any any shot inside the Republican primary for governor. I, I, I wonder what you make of this party now as somebody who not just was a part of it, but was part of the leadership for a long time and not that long ago. Do you feel like you have a place in this party? I doubt that I could get nominated uh, for a statewide, um, on the statewide ticket uh, in the Republican system today. And um, and that's not to say I haven't, you know, I'm the same person, generally the same positions <laughs> I already changed, had. Right? Yeah, I mean, I've changed some, but yeah. I haven't changed that much. And um, and so, yeah, the whole thing has kind of moved to a place where um, there's kind of, uh, I'm a results-oriented person. So I, if I'm working on something, if if all I can do is make something bad less bad, I want to do that. Right? That's the, and, and if I can make something good happen, that's awesome. I don't like to walk past problems. And that means compromise and negotiation. And that stuff just seems like way out of style now. <laughs> like, uh <laughs> Like it, uh, compromise as a betrayal. Um, that bending over backward to find common ground. Um, you know, there's different coalitions. Even, like even during this Snyder administration, when we had um, Republican control of both branches of the legislature, um, there was there were very very different coalitions that came together on different issues yeah. that included both sides of the aisle. Whether it was um, it was a, a road funding package or Medicaid or right to work or autism insurance reform. Mm-hmm. Those, you know, big issues moving through, the the majorities that voted to make things happen looked radically different one from another. And that's that's my style. I think that's a sign of a healthy process when when um, when the the uh, governing majority changes depending on which issue. But I also uh, take an attitude of like we can disagree on an issue, but maybe we're gonna maybe we're gonna need to get together on the next one. And so, not taking disagreements personally is important. Our system, people seem te- to take everything personally now, and um, like every issue, die at the end of the sword on yeah. this issue. And if we're not together on this, then we're you know then uh, you're dead to me. That it doesn't even compute with me. It, it, it's just it's a it's a um, a recipe for um, really for uh, soundbite governance mm. and where the deliverable is is getting a zinger in <laughs> instead of like an outcome <laughs> right. that Owning matters. Only the to other people. side, right? In some way. Yeah, I I don't get that. I, I it's just I'm not built for it, and so uh, that's why I I love doing the work that I do now, which I'm still involved in 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 the political system, but it's working on policy with whoever is willing to work on it. And uh, it doesn't really, the political party is not even a factor in the in the discussion now. And I know that like a lot of the goals that we have on childcare and education and infrastructure and um, 
transportation and um, in addition to things like business taxes and mm-hmm. regulations, that there are going to be very different cohorts of people that I'm working with on each of those issues. Yeah. Okay. Brian Kelly, head of the SBA here in Michigan, former lieutenant governor. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be with you again. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue with more from the Mackinac Policy Conference on Mackinac Island. You're listening to Detroit Today from the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference, our annual chance to talk away from home about all the successes and the failures and the challenges that we have here in Michigan. Do you know what Automation Alley is? I feel like not enough people do, but it's something that's been around for quite some time, and it is a real powerhouse of leveraging the rich automotive history that we have here in uh, Southeast Michigan and trying to make it into power for the future. How do we rethink the things that we do? How do we rethink the way community comes together uh, in our state? Tom Kelly is the executive director and CEO of Automation Alley, and he joins us now to talk about their work and uh, how it's all going. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Was my, was my description good there? Or, uh... <laughs> yeah, I could go on for about five minutes straight, so we'll leave it with that because let's get the, we'll get to some good questions, I'm sure. Yeah, so, so as I said, Automation Alley has been around for a long time. I can remember... Yeah. Uh, first hearing about it when Brooks Patterson was the Oakland County executive and was explaining yeah. to me this whole this whole concept. Uh, talk about what the assignment and the challenges were when you started, and yeah. I guess what they look like now in 2023. Yeah, so when we started, of course, I wasn't there because I was back in 1999. Yeah. I came in in 2016 as the executive director and CEO. In 1999, the communities, the eight counties around Southeast Michigan got together and formed Automation Alley as a branding campaign to change from Rust Belt to high tech, right? If you remember 1999. See, you already said it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it was all about, you know, people viewed us negatively, pejoratively, when you talked about Michigan. Uh, it was last one out of Michigan, turn out the lights. You remember mm-hmm. all those pejorative mm-hmm. terms that, that, that came from that. And so, it was really a, a mechanism to say to the world, look, you know, we do a lot of high-tech stuff here. And to start that process, when I came in in 2016, we changed again. We metamorphosized into the next thing, which is we became Michigan's Industry 4.0 Knowledge Center. And Industry 4.0 is, is this fourth industrial revolution. It's about artificial intelligence, which we're hearing a ton about today. Yeah. We've been talking about it since 2016. It's about 3D printing. It's about collaborative robotics. All of these things are coming to democratize manufacturing, which if you're a state that is based on high capital manufacturing and the world is going to low capital distributed Mm. manufacturing, we got to run like hell to figure out what that looks like and get ahead of it. Yeah. So tell me in 2023 what that does look like. Well, in 2023, one of the things is we're very, very focused on 3D printing because, Stephen, if there's one technology I want listeners to pay attention to, in manufacturing. It's not AI. AI is going to be very, very important, but it's not quite ready for prime time yet in manufacturing. 3D printing Hmm. takes what used to be subtractive manufacturing and done with assembly lines and with very intense amounts of capital with great big plants and puts it in the palm of your hand 
as a little 3D printer that anybody in the world can do, including all of our small suppliers in Michigan. So we're trying to get ahead of this by doing a project with Oakland County called Project Diamond. We got a phase two for $15 million. We did 300 printers between Oakland and Macomb County that we distributed over the last three years. In the next three years, we're gonna distribute another three to 400. Hmm. And what that gives us is a scale where four to 500 little companies can all behave as great big suppliers. If you take that to its conclusion, think about what that means for our society and for our communities where the little guy can actually use other little guys to behave really big. And then it becomes an equation of how do I innovate? If I have four or 500 innovators, I'm gonna do a lot better than if I have one. Yeah. So, so when you say 3D printer, mm -hmm. I think of the thing I see on Amazon that I can buy for $150, $200 that yep. will let me print models or, yep. or, or things like that. And I know that's the low end yep. of it. But that is the beginning, I think. You know, our, our kids are doing well, these kinds of things. That's the beginning of the entrance into this new age of, of manufacturing. Right, and think how accessible it is. You just said I can buy a 3D printer on Amazon and my kids can innovate. They can create their own designs. What if they created a design that we went, holy cow, I can actually make money at this. How do they then get access to six or 700 printers to hit scale? Mm. That's the community we're building. We want to take the community of small manufacturers and actually st stick them into the, or stitch them into the academic community, both at the college level and the high school level, and give kids in those, in those institutions a chance to get into manufacturing in a way that is, that is seamless, that is easy, that is low barrier. You don't need all this special skill. You mm -hmm. just need a brain and, and, a, and a creative mind. Yeah. And kids have that in spades. Are, are we investing as a state enough in the growth of this kind of opportunity? Are, are, we, are we leaning hard enough into it? I mean, lots of people tell me we're off base there, yeah. but then I listen to you and I'm like, well, yeah. maybe, we're, maybe we're closer to the mark than we think. Well, it's like saying, did we invest enough in teaching kids how to use TikTok? It's not necessary. <laughs> right. It's like, we, yes, we have to teach kids how to be more creative, how to take more risks, how to leverage what exists today, not into jobs of the past mm. that were rote, that were needed specific skills for specific times. We're moving into an area where uh, kids are going to come into the workforce and you're going to do multiple jobs all the time. You're going to be, it's like the Uberization of everything. And kids will want that. They actually want that creative freedom where they can jump in and out of things. That's why Uber is so attractive to people is that they go, wow, I feel like my own boss. I go out and work when I want. Why can't manufacturing be like Uber? Hmm. And that's when you stitch those together, all of a sudden you say, wow, this really can open up great opportunities and we need to be ahead of it. Now, the beauty is if you look around the U.S., we're not ahead, but we're not behind. In other words, this transformation well, good, is right? difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's good. And this, this is where Oakland County giving us that, that seed capital, if you will, that allows us to, to, to pilot into the community. Can we do this? And we know we're going to hit a lot of hurdles along the way. But we have to do it because it's the right thing to do for the community. So when, when I also hear the, the name Automation Alley, I, I do think of a geographic reference to that, right? I think of Oakland County, and then you were talking about that there were eight counties that were, that were involved. But, but 
Talk about the way in which that geography and the things that are going on inside that geography really influence uh, the work that yeah. you're that you're up to right now. Well, and we've actually expanded yet again, just it's to confuse your audience there even you more. <laughs> we, we cover the entire state of Michigan. So when I came in, we had about 700 members, and about 400 were manufacturers, and about 250 of those were in Oakland County. Today, we have 2,000 members, 1,600 are manufacturers, and they're spread all throughout the state. And the reason for that is we are, we are a library of knowledge. We look over the hill and around the bend and say, this is what you need to pay attention to. If you need to know about AI, come to us. We'll teach you mm-hmm. as it relates to manufacturing, 3D printing, uh, any of these um, collaborative robotics. All of these technologies, we become the library for them to learn. And so, and we, and we make the barrier to entry very low through a, through a generous partnership with the MEDC to become an essential member in manufacturing for Automation Alley is free. Hmm. Let me say that again, it's free. <laughs> so free. There, there, there is, the, the, wow. the bar is on the floor. You just have to step over it. The reason why we make it free is there's such resistance to change that we don't want to charge for you to, to help you make that journey with us to change. We want to say, get in here and start learning and you'll change on your own. When you think of things like um, logistics hubs, yeah. right? And I, I bring that up because for a long time in Wayne County in particular, we were talking about the potential for Metro Airport or, or Willow Run uh, or some yeah. combination of the two to really, to really capitalize on the idea that on-time delivery and packaging and, and manufacturing and all of these things uh, could could work here yeah. better than they work other places. And I remember Automation Alley being part of that yeah. discussion. We never developed much of what that vision was. And I remember that uh, Robert Fricano, who was the Wayne County executive, was a real champion of it for a, a long time. Yeah. People kind of snickered, I thought, at the idea. Oh, no, that'll never work. Yeah. But, but sometimes... I. I I think, boy, we missed out. We didn't, we didn't jump on something that could be huge for us right now. Yeah. Am I right about that? It, it, well, yes, but let me take an example. I think mm-hmm. it'll, it'll be illustrative. Project Diamond has, when we study this out, it'll have seven, 800 manufacturers. We're working today on a pilot with a drone company to say, how do you pick up those parts and aggregate them into a common center hmm where you can then quality test them, package them, and send them. Because if we had a contract with General Motors or, or Stellantis or Ford, they don't want to receive one package at a time. Yeah, right? That right. would be ridiculous, even though they'd want to support this network. So the idea is how do you aggregate 600 parts at a time and get them to the factory floor in the right amount of, of, of speed? And that's where using this network coupled with drones. So when you talk about logistics, logistics is about the last mile in a lot of ways, more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Big warehouses are nice, but that's merely an aggregation mechanism for the big guy to figure out how to get stuff out there. We're trying to turn it on its head and say, how do you aggregate all the little guys so they can behave as a big? We're, We're actually looking at it from a completely different way, which I don't think a lot of people are doing. But if you want to do economic development, in my heart, you have to start with the smalls. They're the, they're the lifeblood of the community. The bigs come and go based on taxes, <laughs> right? The smalls are the community. They will so, be there yeah. all the time. Sure, sure. Right. Uh, I ask everyone this on the island, just to, to almost give exposition to what happens here. Yeah. What is your agenda? 
up here this year. What are the things that for you uh, make this conference worthwhile and and an opportunity? Yeah. Well, the the, the two things. Um, regardless of what we're working on institutionally that I want to talk about, like Project Diamond we mm-hmm. talked about, the beauty of being on Mackinac Island with everybody else is you get to build relationships with people that, that can help you advance your mission. You know, we are a nonprofit, so we're mission-based. So I'm always trying to tell my story and listen to others and the stories they're telling and see where are the intersections. I think if there's one criticism I have of economic development, and I saw this as I was a young person coming up in my career, I couldn't understand how how much we fought over each other's yeah. turf. Yeah. And you see a new generation, I hope I'm a part of this generation, that is coming in and they're so collaborative. And we don't view it as turf. We view it as, hey, are, we, are you advancing Michigan? Am I advancing Michigan? Then let's figure out how we do this together. And every leader that I've come across that is, that is new in their role is totally collaborative. And I'm seeing less and less. So I'm, I take great hope and solace in what I'm seeing. Do you think that lasts beyond this week? beyond Mackinac. Do you see that playing out in our region more often now than you used to? Well, I do. Uh, We can go back to to, uh, leadership of of old, you know, where where you had Brooks fighting with (laughs) Coleman Young and and it was a knockdown drag out and everybody's blaming everybody for everything. Now you see, you know, Oakland County and Macomb County and Detroit and Wayne there's a civility there. There's a real desire to all work together. Now, not always. I, I know they got their problems, but it, I see that all over. And maybe maybe your listeners don't see that all the time, but I, I really see that, that when I talk with new leaders, they are almost always willing to collaborate. And there's less talk of, that's my turf. You stay out of it. Wow. That's a, I mean, it's a powerful statement to make about I hope it's true because I see it, but I'm, you know, I'm a little fish in a big pond. So (laughs) there's a lot of, I think, a sense that if somebody else is winning, then I must be losing kind of mentality that that takes place here. And and there are a lot of reasons for that. Many of them quite legitimate, but I don't cutting off our nose to spite our face. And it it sounds to me be like you're hearing something really different and that I guess that's encouraging to me. Well, and I think we suffer from a lack of creativity because we're not we're not high tech enough in Michigan. We don't high tech out in Silicon Valley or anywhere else views like, well, I don't care. You're not a competitor. Even if you are a competitor, you're not a competitor because we can both grow the pie. We tend to view in Michigan or at least in the old days that there was a static pie and it was and it was uh, you know, however you divided it it was a win-lose. We have to get with AI, with 3D printing, with what I talked about, the pie can get much bigger for Michigan, yeah. especially as China is maturing and steadying out and you're going to see a lot of production come back. We're poised to really grow our manufacturing back in Michigan. I know it sounds crazy to say because we've all lived through what it was. We're actually ready to grow again and we have to say, let's all make the pie bigger and stop fighting. Okay. Tom Kelly, Executive Director and CEO of Automation Alley. Great to catch up with you and on with uh, what's going on at Automation Alley uh, here on Mackinac Island. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Stephen. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversations.